Our series focuses on clinical decision-making and management of breast cancer in the adjuvant and metastatic settings, and I met with Dr. Hope Rugo, who comments on one of the most exciting recent developments in oncology, the emerging role of the anti-VEGF agent Bevacizumab or Avastin. Dr. Rugo began by discussing the fact that unlike the anti-HER2 agent trastuzumab or Herceptin, for anti-VEGF therapy, no molecular markers identify patients more likely to respond to treatment. Anti-angiogenic therapy is of increasing interest. I think if you look back to treating HER2-positive disease with trastuzumab or Herceptin, that's a target that we knew was there on the breast cancer cell. So we can target a specific subset of breast cancer patients with an antibody, and it works really, really well. Anti-angiogenic therapy is a little bit different for breast cancer because it's an idea of the way cancer grows, that it's dependent on new blood vessel growth, and that that new blood vessel growth does many things. One is that it helps cancer cells to be able to move around, so to metastasize. It helps them maybe to survive when they're hiding out, waiting to grow back later. And then it's an essential component of the growth of metastatic tumors as well and the spread of metastatic tumors once they've already grown in another organ. So the idea is that if you starve that blood supply, that the tumor will shrink. And then if you go forward from that, the idea is that if you prevent those blood vessels from growing, maybe you prevent the tumor from ever coming back and improve cure rate. The other interesting thing is that it turns out that antiangiogenic therapy, at least Avastin or Bevacizumab, actually reduces the amount of pressure inside tumor cells. The pressure is really, really high, and chemotherapy agents can't get inside those cells well. And if they do, they're often pumped out as quickly as they're pumped in. So if you could reduce pressure, you might reduce that and actually improve the amount of drug that you delivered directly to the cancer cell, which of course is critical in the effectiveness of those drugs. So the first anti-antigenic agent that we had didn't actually block the receptor the way Herceptin does. It blocks the protein that stimulates the receptor. So it blocks the ligand to the receptor, and that's what Bevacizumab or Avastin is, an antibody to the ligand. It was first tested in breast and colon cancer, but in breast cancer, there were so many competing drugs that could work well. It was tested in very, very resistant cancer. Actually, my colleague Kathy Millard, Indiana, and her colleagues at one of our cooperative groups, ECOG, designed a study where women who were untreated, metastatic breast cancer, they could have had hormone therapy. They got paclitaxel or taxol weekly because another group had shown that weekly was better. And then half of the group got it with Avastin or Bevacizumab. And the patients had metastatic disease and they couldn't have HER2-positive disease. The combination of paclitaxel and Bevacizumab doubled the response rate and almost doubled the time to progression. It's hard for us to look at survival impacts when we're treating a general population. So that's a difficult endpoint that we may not reach with that particular study. You know, we've all been very enthusiastic about the use of anti-angiogenic therapy. And so for the use of Avastin, there are two randomized trials that give you a menu of chemotherapy agents, standard chemotherapy treatments for breast cancer, first and second line therapy, and give you a randomization that favors the Bevacizumab or Avastin. So it's a so-called two-to-one randomization where twice as many people get the Avastin as don't, but everybody gets the chemo. So for example, you could choose that a patient would get capcitabine or Zolota or a Braxane or a gemcitabine or docetaxel.
taxol taxotere, and then you enroll them on the trial, and they either get the Avastin or not. And if it's first line, they can roll over on progression and get the Avastin. So that's going to give us a lot more information. Then there's a whole lot of interest in combining Avastin with other chemo drugs and in other settings. So one cooperative group trial that will open will look at patients of HER2-positive disease and combine Taxol, Paclitaxel, with Trastuzumab or Herceptin, and then half of the group will also get Bevacizumab, and I think that'll be really interesting. There's a phase one study at UCLA from Mark Pegram that combined trastuzumab or Herceptin and Avastin and found that patients responded. And he's gone on and done a phase two study. And the responses so far are encouraging. And I think we need to see more about what happens in patients compared to Herceptin alone. And that will be from the cooperative group trial. And also what the combined toxicity is of these agents, like is there more heart effects or not? We don't really know that yet. But there's so much enthusiasm now that bevacizumab or Avastin is being combined with other agents as well. So, for example, we're working on a trial combining Avastin and bevacizumab with lapatinib and another HER2-directed new therapy, and that trial will be done with Sloan Kettering and UCSF and with GSK as a sponsor and hopefully other sites as well. So then, of course, our big goal is to cure women with cancer. So moving this drug into the early stage setting is really important. And there's currently a trial looking at just toxicity of adding Avastin to standard adjuvant AC followed by T as treatment for women with early stage breast cancer. There's a trial in the neoadjuvant setting. And then we're doing a trial where the T is replaced with a Braxane. So there's a lot of studies going on in a planned, large, randomized trial in the adjuvant setting through the cooperative groups that will fit the FDA's requirements and will look at the benefits in early stage cancer. So I think that we're moving ahead really nicely in the evaluation of bevacizumab, but of course another area is to look at other ways of blocking angiogenesis or other types of anti-angiogenic therapy. And I mentioned lapatinib earlier. There are many oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors that block activation of the VEGF receptor, and a number of those agents have been in studies in breast cancer. There are a whole bunch of names, and they're hard to remember, but sunitinib showed about the same response rate in heavily pretreated breast cancer as single-agent Avastin. There's another drug, axitinib, which has been tested with docetaxel, and hopefully we'll have some results on that next year. And then there's, I'm just mentioning a few of them, there are drugs from pretty much every pharmaceutical company in clinical trials right now that are oral agents, so that's an advantage, but also that block the enzymatic activation of the receptor, so might be able to overcome some resistance. It's interesting that those drugs all have variable side effects, but the most common one is hypertension. I mentioned there are some other issues with bevacizumab, and they exist for these other agents as well. The more you give a drug like this, the more side effects you see, and they may be very, very rare, but rare side effects with bevacizumab include perforation of the colon, and that seems to have happened almost exclusively in men and women who had previous abdominal surgery. But other things, there's a new side effect that we all had to put in our consent forms, reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy, and that is an odd symptom 
symptom. We've never seen it in all of our patients, but it has been reported it gets better. It's a little bit of confusion and white matter changes on MRI scanning. And then uh, high blood pressure, protein in the urine, and then one curious side effect of perforation of the nasal septum. And again, except for hypertension, these side effects are very uncommon and they're just unusual. So we have to know to look for them. But I think it's a very exciting time when we're beginning to understand how to use these agents. So bottom line is we now have evidence that by adding bevacizumab to paclitaxel in the first line setting, you improve the outcome with pretty acceptable side effects and risks. How were you making the decision about first-line chemotherapy before this data came out, and how are you making it now, or how would you make it if it were totally reimbursed and the issue of reimbursement was kind of off the table or cost, et cetera? Well, unfortunately, you know, it's always hard to step outside of where you live, you know, and I think it's an important question. I think we should think about how we would use these agents without cost issues and approval issues, but the cost and approval issues are big barriers. So I participate in the Ribbon 1 and Ribbon 2 trials because the drug isn't widely available to us in California, although I understand that it's very geographic, the insurance approval of Avast and for women receiving first-line chemotherapy. The only convincing data is with Baclitaxel. So I think that using the drug outside of a trial, I would use it in the first-line setting and with Paclitaxel. I think we have convincing evidence from the capcitabine trial that continuing bevacizumab after progression isn't going to help, and giving it to women who have multiple drug-resistant cancer isn't going to help in the long run. It's interesting, in the uh, first-line trial, ECOG 2100, The side effects were quite modest. The only side effect really to speak of was more neuropathy because women were able to stay on their therapy for longer, so they got more paclitaxel. But hypertension was really the only significant side effect, and it was well treated. So how do you decide? Well, right now I try and put people on those trials. But outside of the setting of the clinical trial, we are often faced with women who really don't want to go on the trial or we want to use chemotherapy combinations that aren't available. And in that situation, a woman who is receiving chemotherapy as first-line treatment, I think it's reasonable to consider the use of bevacizumab as long as they don't have you know, out-of-control hypertension or other side effects that would preclude use. And they just have to be very aware of the toxicity. I'll give you one example. A young woman who had a triple negative, so-called ERPR, HER2 negative breast cancer, bad cancers in her 30s, had a small tumor, completely removed, negative nodes, got excellent adjuvant chemotherapy. And two years later, appears she actually had bilateral mastectomies and saline implants. Two years later, she comes in with a big central mass kind of over her sternum that's clearly residual breast tissue where she's had a huge local recurrence. Well, you know, she's been scanned everywhere and we can't find disease anywhere else. It's not clearly invading the chest wall. So this woman still is potentially curable. And, you know, we don't really have any drugs that we know yet we should use for triple negative cancers to target that cancer other than anti-angiogenic therapy. So actually her insurer denied the use of bevacizumab. She and her husband elected to receive bevacizumab in combination with paclitaxel. She's actually receiving NAB paclitaxel, Braxane, because she didn't want to get any steroids at all. And then we're appealing the decision on the insurer. And I think that's a reasonable option. You know, that's a situation where an improvement in response could translate into operability and improve long-term outcome. How's she doing? 
She's doing really well, actually. She was going to get her third dose today, but her white count was a little low. The tumor's already shrinking, which is very encouraging because she did receive docetax on the adjuvant setting. You know, it's one thing to sort of read a research paper, see a bunch of numbers and curves, but also to see patients themselves. I know it's kind of dangerous to make you know observations on a few patients or a bunch of patients, but sort of gut feeling when you see women with metastatic breast cancer getting bevacizumab with chemotherapy, does the magnitude of the response seem greater than without it? It is hard to say. I mean, we have these anecdotal cases where women had great responses and then they were very durable. But again, you know, because a lot of our experience using bevacizumab was in more advanced disease, it is a little bit difficult to say. We actually have to have a patient who went on a clinical trial that we did with Memorial Sloan Kettering on bevacizumab and an EGFR inhibitor called erlotinib. And she's now three and a half years into her therapy and hasn't progressed as yet. She had taxane-resistant lung metastases. So there are clearly patients for whom that will be their only therapy that works well, and in some ways similar to giving drastuzumab to a HER2-positive breast cancer patient whose cancers recurred after chemotherapy. So I do think that we'll be able to figure this out in the long run as we start using the drug more frequently in the metastatic setting. You mentioned nabpaclitaxel and docetaxel and trials looking at those in combination with bevacizumab. Can we sort of take a step back and look at the three available taxanes and sort of what we know about the three advantages, disadvantages, and where you see all this heading in terms of taxane therapy? You know, it's an interesting time, and there was just a large discussion in the lay press and the newspapers about cost and what the benefits are, and in some ways that was directed against the marketing of Abraxane, which I think the news people felt like was a cost issue. And indeed, cost is important. We were talking about bevacizumab, the charge to the patient who's elected to pay for that drug because the university's infusion center charges two and a half times what AEWP and most infusion centers do. It's 11000 something. That's including a 30% discount. So that's for single dose. So cost is a big issue. And in terms of comparing the taxanes, paclitaxel is generic, so it's not very expensive. And we know how to give it. We're all very comfortable with it. Docetaxel is still on brand, but it will become generic in the not terribly distant future. And nabpaclitaxel is the drug which was most recently approved. So does it make sense to use one other than the other? Well, I think if you just look at paclitaxel and docetaxel, the side effect profiles are sufficiently different and the dosing schedules that in some ways you could choose in the metastatic setting based on your choice of dosing schedule and side effect concern. So docetaxel is generally given every three weeks and paclitaxel weekly in the metastatic setting. In the adjuvant setting, I think that really it's kind of up to the investigator because we have data from ECOG 1199 showing that the results are relatively equivalent for using weekly or every three-week either drug. So then nabpaclitaxel is the new drug on the block, and it's sort of repackaging an old friend by using an albumin shell to instead of the toxic cremophore that we normally give. And the advantages are a much shorter infusion time and no need for pre-medications. So the argument against that is that, well, it's more expensive because a new drug, significantly more expensive, and many patients can taper down on their pre-medications over time in any case. So 
Why be concerned? Well, I think that there are additional toxicities of chromophore that we haven't understood well. There's certainly more profound and long-lasting neurotoxicity, which is a problem, especially for women who respond and stay on for a long time, and some women who do really need to be on steroids every week with their paclitaxel, or they get significant edema from docetaxel. And you can get around those by using NAB paclitaxel. The other thing is that there may be some targeting of that agent because of the albumin shell, and that's being looked into in a number of trials, including a planned CALGB3 arm trial that has recently been approved by CTEP. So that means that the NCI has approved it, so we'll be able to move ahead. And I think that that will give us a little bit more information. And that trial will also look at exabepilone, that new microtubule active agent. And I think what we're really looking for as we move forward is agents that can overcome the innate resistance to taxanes that some cancers have. So I guess the real bottom line is that we have to choose based on the individual patient, toxicity issues, dosing schedules. And in patients who've had multiple relapse disease, there's data that weekly abraxane may be effective even when the other taxanes are not. And so that's another setting where I might choose nabpaclitaxel weekly because of previous phase two data that encourages me that I'll see a response. It's been said that the neurotoxicity associated with nabpaclitaxel seems to be more short-lived. It goes away more quickly when you stop the drug. Is that your experience? It is. It's an interesting thing to see in practice, again, anecdotal, that you know patients will get a tingling for a couple of days, and by the time they come in for their next dose, it's gone, which is very different from paclitaxel, where we often will see neuropathy that starts after the end of therapy. And we have a trial now in the adjuvant setting looking at AC followed by NAB paclitaxel and with bevacizumab, with Sloan Kettering, and in that trial, we're giving dose-dense NAB paclitaxel. So we may see a different pattern of neurotoxicity just by giving a more drug close together, but it's only four doses, and so far it's been very well tolerated. So I think that I do believe the information that suggests that the peripheral neuropathy is less with weekly therapy, and although more with every three weeks at the FDA-approved dose, it resolves much more quickly, which is a very important quality of life endpoint. And I think that dose-dense AC NAB has been studied also by U.S. Oncology. What did they say in terms of neurotoxicity? So they did a small pilot of AC followed by NAB paclitaxel dose-dense without the bevacizumab, and they didn't use prophylactic growth factors. So the major problem was that you need to get prophylactic growth factors, so the women had low blood counts and got delayed and things like that. They didn't have enough data when they presented their preliminary information about neurotoxicity. It didn't look significant at all, but it was a very early analysis, but at least that was very encouraging. It's really tricky trying to decide how to talk about these kinds of things and not bring in the issue of reimbursement because it is such an issue in terms of day-to-day practice. But it's also good to sort of try to dissect out the clinical science. And my question is, assuming that the cost was the same, for example, as paclitaxel, would you use paclitaxel at all or would you just use NAB? I was just talking about that with a senior colleague, and I think that all of us would use NAB paclitaxel without question, because it can't be good, is my general feeling. And I think we've shown that in animal models to be given this toxic solvent, cremophore, sort of as an added toxicity without any benefit. And then the second thing is that I believe that we may indeed see that in some settings, albumin is actively transported across the blood vessel into the tumor interstitium or the tissue around the tumor. And that's an active transport 
transport mechanism that exists in all of us. And so most chemotherapy drugs get out of the blood vessel into the tissue by these leaky junctions where the cells aren't stuck together very well. But if you could capitalize on an existing transport system, which is what we believe with this drug, you may end up with a better drug. It's just, you know, it's going to take a while to show that. It's sort of a Trojan horse thing that it pulls the thing in and then does its damage. And I guess there have been hints that maybe NAB is more effective than regular paclitaxel. Yes, the comparison that led to approval was every three-week paclitaxel, because that was the label, versus every three-week NAB paclitaxel. And again, you know, it's an important option, but if in clinical practice, I think that are concerned, again, about cost and cost of practices, because if you're not absolutely for sure seeing a survival difference, then maybe they take the other route. Now, with docetaxel, you know, the issue is over the long term, especially in metastatic disease where, you know, you treat sort of forever, edema can be a huge issue. And trying to distinguish the edema from tocitaxel or cancer progression can be just very, very difficult. The other thing that we've seen in women who've been treated over time is really severe eye effects besides the nail, but they get the fibrosis of their lacrimal duct as well as loss of their eyelashes and red eyes. And in some cases, we have one patient who moved from another location and had been on docetaxel taxol for months and months and months and we switched hormone therapy and over eight months she hasn't had any recovery she never grew her eyelashes back so there are clearly toxicities that are significant what's going to be fascinating is to see how much of these are the drug and how much of these are increased by the solvent or the detergent tween 80 and how much are really that you're giving a whole lot of steroids and so you don't recover. There is actually a NAB docetaxel now, and that will start in phase one trials probably in January. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. What about the issue of the fact that you don't need pre-medications and you don't see allergic reactions? I mean, do you see allergic reactions to docetaxel and paclitaxel in spite of pre-medications? We have, actually, and one of my colleagues had a patient who got her first dose and developed a rash afterwards and then had acute anaphylaxis and died with her second dose of paclitaxel. You know, it's very hard to predict who's going to have a reaction. And patients, again, a colleague earlier today was telling me about a patient who had a severe reaction required intubation who had been getting paclitaxel for months. Although mostly it occurs on the first few doses, it can occur unexpectedly. And I think that it is, although uncommon, a very serious side effect. What about quality of life and how people feel? I hear a lot of oncologists kind of poo-pooing the issue of problems that occur with pre-medications other than brittle diabetics, et cetera. I mean, I know I don't like taking antihistamines. I just don't feel good. I don't know about what Decadron is like. But do you think patients feel better without that stuff? I do. I think a lot of patients just absolutely hate the steroids, and they keep them awake at night. They make them crabby or emotionally labile. They're, you know, a lot of different symptoms. They all get urinary tract infections, and not to mention the glucose intolerance in some patients. But, you know, the patient population we treat tends to be pretty healthy, and it's not a huge issue. The diabetes part, that's a clear cut. There's no problem just using apaclitaxel. But the rest of the patients, you know, metastatic disease, they're doing treatment to stay alive. Alive, not to cure their disease. It's not self-limited. And so the pre-medications and the long infusion time can be really quite onerous for these patients. Now, some investigators will actually stop the steroids after four to six times of giving the paclitaxel. They taper it down and stop it. But, you know, there are clearly patients who then will subsequently have a reaction. Yeah, the patient you described is real scary. And I assume yeah. that she had that reaction in spite of having continued pre-medications. Yes. 
if somebody has a real hypersensitivity reaction, we've learned by experience not to rechallenge. I want to track out into adjuvant therapy, but one final question in terms of metastatic disease, which is, can you talk a little bit about how you approach the use of sequential hormone therapy in metastatic breast cancer, both in the premenopausal patient and the postmenopausal patient? It's a moving target, I think is the right way to put it. Our patients who've been on hormone therapy who develop recurrent disease now are a different group than those who developed recurrent disease in the not so distant past because many of them will have already seen an aromatase inhibitor and tamoxifen. So I think that part of it depends on whether a woman has relapsed on hormone therapy or not. And then we usually alternate the treatments. If you have disease in liver and lung after two years on tamoxifen, it's unlikely that any hormone therapy is going to have a huge effect, but you might be able to use it for maintenance after response on chemotherapy to try and really prolong response duration. That can be effective sometimes, but otherwise I think it really depends on what the treatment scenario is. We tend to use aromatase inhibitors up front just because it's easier for patients to take a pill than an injection. Of course, we're talking about and postmenopausal women. Yes, and, and then we move on to usually fulvestrant and then back to an aromatase inhibitor and we'll use megase. Sometimes we use estrogens. We you know, try and really incorporate all the hormone therapies. And Postmenopausal women, yes, but if I have a premenopausal woman, I put them into menopause with an injection, a GnRH agonist like Lupron or Zolodex, rather than waiting for them to go into menopause and starting on TAM. Because, I mean, I guess when you think about it, in premenopausal women, you have tamoxifen and you have ovarian suppression, and that's kind of it. So I guess the next move is make her postmenopausal and then use the postmenopausal sequence. Yes, and I think, you know, although we don't have a lot of data for that, that's a really reasonable approach. Bob Carlson has done a little study looking at the combination of ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor and shown that patients certainly responded. I think the real challenge to us is to make sure that the patients remain in menopause, which we're learning so much about the aromatase inhibitors as we use them, but they stimulate any residual function in the ovaries. So a woman could have been amenorrheic for three years, be 51 years old, and you'll start the aromatase inhibitor and she'll have a period, you know, even though her estradiol levels were menopausal. Because what happens is, because it's such a good stimulant, it will stimulate whatever residual function you have. You mentioned fulvestrin or Fazlodex. What's your experience been with that agent, and how do you approach the dose and schedule? You know, it is interesting because we managed to sort of topple one of our local HMOs who kept denying the loading approach. Fulvestrin's an interesting drug. I think we had expected better results from the initial studies, and then we went back and looked at the pharmacokinetics, and it appeared that it really takes three months to reach study state if you're going to give the injection once a month. So that wasn't going to work for any of our patients with metastatic disease. So we started this idea of loading, and there's two different approaches that are being used. One is to use a higher dose at 500 milligrams, but the other sort of more standard approach is to just use 250 milligrams every two weeks for three doses and then move on to once a month. And with that, studies have shown that you do get your peak level much earlier. So that's a much better way to approach it. And then my clinical experience is that women who have disease that responds well to hormone therapy respond to fulvestrant. And we might get anywhere from three to 12 to 18 months out of it. I mean, it's very highly variable because we aren't treating women in the first line. There's actually been a study proposed to use two years of fulvestrin after five years of aromatase inhibitor therapy as extended adjuvant treatment, and that will be very interesting if it goes through. 
That is interesting, kind of looking at a different mechanism of hormone therapy. And I guess that concept is kind of like the trial that looked at using an aromatase inhibitor after tamoxifen. Now most of the postmenopause women are getting aromatase inhibitors. The idea here is follow that up with fulvestrin. Right. How do you think women in that situation will respond to having to come in once a month for an intramuscular injection? In the adjuvant setting? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they come in every three weeks for trastuzumab for a year. So I think the issue is extending it forever. And I think we'll have to see how it goes. It's a quick injection, and it's not too bad. Of course, it'll depend on distance. But for a clinical trial where they have to come to the main center to get treated. But otherwise, I do think that women will do that. You know, we have a lot of data now that supports the use of extending adjuvant hormone therapy. I think we're all convinced that breast cancer is a disease that we're going to be seeing relapsing later and later as our therapies are more effective. I guess also, particularly, we're starting to see that you see these late relapses a lot more in women who have ER-positive tumors. With more than 50% of the recurrences after five years, and the most recent overview suggests that really a significant portion of relapses, the majority occur from 5 to 15 years. In those patients with the ER positive. ER positive disease. Right. What about fulvestrin in premenopausal women who've been made postmenopausal with an LHRH agonist? I think that's a very reasonable use of the drug. There's no real reason not to use it except for there's no data. So I wouldn't use it in a menstruating premenopausal woman. But I think if the woman is menopausal for whatever reason, it's reasonable to use fulvestrin. I guess the scenario that you see a lot of times, though, would be a woman who maybe got tamoxifen as adjuvant therapy, and now they've had a relapse premenopausal patient, still menstruating, so they have their ovary suppressed. Once their ovary suppressed, people then often will add in an AI. Right. And then at some point, they're going to get worse again. And, and what question, do you do on progression? Right. Obviously, you're going to stop the AI, but should you stop the ovarian suppression or just keep it going and, again, add in the fulvestrin? If you're going to go on to fulvestrin, you should keep it going. If you're going to go on to chemotherapy, we don't know that it needs to Sure, be. sure. What has been seen in terms of side effects and toxicity with fulvestrin? It's pretty well tolerated. Other than injection site problems, the only other side effect is hot flashes, really. Any sense about how those hot flashes compare, say, with what you see with tamoxifen? I think they're probably pretty similar. Remember, by the time women have gone on fulvestrin, they pretty much adjusted to menopause and hot flashes, so it's not a huge issue. Let's move on to the issue of adjuvant therapy. I think one of the most controversial issues right now is management of the patient who has an ER-positive node-negative tumor. I guess that's probably the most common subset of what we see. Lots of node-negative tumors because fortunately there's a lot of mammography going on, most patients having ER-positive. And the dilemma there is, A, do we use chemotherapy? And B, what kind of hormone therapy, which I guess is a general issue in the adjuvant setting. Maybe we can tackle the first issue, which is chemotherapy. How do you approach that decision? In a woman who has ER-positive node-negative disease, I think that there are some patients who you really have a strong feeling that using the NCCN guidelines and the St. Gallen guidelines, that you're pretty strong feeling that these patients should probably receive chemotherapy. It might be just under one centimeter ERP or negative HER2 positive breast cancer. That's pretty clear. Or maybe you'd have a 0.95 centimeter ER positive but strongly HER2 positive breast cancer. Another case would be a tumor that's about a centimeter in size or bigger and has high-grade histology. So an idea that the tumor is more rapidly proliferating, very weak in ER or PR or both. Those are the kinds of patients where you might know up front. Now, on the other hand, you're also going to know up front people who don't need chemotherapy, so older women, smaller tumors, very low grades, strongly ERPR positive. 
Now we have this test we can send, which is a 16 cancer gene panel, Oncotype DX, from the paraffin blocks, where it could give us a little bit of idea of relative gene groups and gives us a score that correlates to a risk of distant recurrence with hormone therapy. It was validated in trials which weren't using our current daily standard of treatment, But nonetheless, I think it's very useful information that could maybe help save us from treating a subset of patients who aren't going to benefit from chemotherapy but are going to get the toxicity. So really we decide based on all the different factors that are prognostic. Are you using the Oncotype DX in your own practice? I have used it, yes, quite a number of times in women who fall into a gray area. And I think most of my colleagues have now, too, not all, but you get these women who have moderately big tumors. They might be T1C or T2 and ER positive, but they're young or they have intermediate grade histology. There's something funny. ER is weak. And then you kind of have to go back and look and put all the information together. I don't think that one test can make a decision for you, but I think it can really help. What about selection of hormonal therapy in the adjuvant setting? Why don't we start out with the postmenopausal patients where so many things have happened in terms of the aromatase inhibitors. Where are we right now in terms of that decision? Well, you know, that is the million-dollar question in the early-stage setting since most women have ER-positive disease, so it's a huge market. But we understand that aromatase inhibitors up front are more effective than tamoxifen alone for five years, and that after two to three years, that aromatase inhibitors are more effective than continuing tamoxifen. So that led the ASCO panel, of course, to recommend the use of an aromatase inhibitor at some time. But which approach do we take? We have no idea, really. So you have to look at pattern of recurrence. I think very high-risk patients, for example, ER weak, HER2 positive, we tend, even though we're not sure, it's just a dividing line for us to try and decide, okay, that woman should get an aromatase inhibitor up front. But the women who have very strongly ERPR positive disease and low-grade histology, it might be reasonable to give them a short course of tamoxifen. Obviously, we're waiting for the big 198 data in 2008 to help us with this. Osteoporosis can be taken into account as well in terms of making decisions, although certainly treatable, you know, could treat and then switch. Sort of up in the air a little bit about how to do that. How would you compare the side effects and toxicity profile of aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen in postmenopausal women? Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, women get so much in the way of myalgia and joint pains with the aromatase inhibitors, and the joint pains from tamoxifen are quite modest. I mean, they're not common, and they usually are not severe. So the side effects that are bothersome on the AI side are all those joint pains, vaginal dryness, some other estrogen deprivation symptoms. Whereas for tamoxifen, it's hot flashes, bloating, ovarian cysts, uterine cysts, et cetera. So I think that you'd always find women who say that was perfect and this really isn't. You know, they have one group or the other. But again, I think that they both have their side effects and they have to be balanced. The one thing that the AIs don't have that TAM does are serious life-threatening side effects. As far as we know now, we haven't seen the eye problem. We haven't seen, for example, any clotting on patients like that or uterine carcinoma. And tamoxifen is associated even with a very low rate of uterine sarcomas, and we don't see that at all. So that's one tremendous difference between the aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen. But of course, women don't feel those symptoms. So they're thinking, I've got joint pains. I heard that's the drug that causes joint pains. And I guess one thing that everybody on the oncology team needs to be on the lookout for is a woman who's on an aromatase inhibitor who's having periods. 
Yeah. That's not a good thing. No, and you know, periods aren't the only thing. Sure. So, you know, we have two large trials in the United States and their international studies looking at uh, ovarian suppression. And so these women are all getting ovarian suppression. And we've had a woman who started having periods on a GnRH agonist and an aromatase inhibitor. And I think it demonstrates the power of the aromatase inhibitors to bring out residual ovarian function. So we actually measure estradiol, unless a woman's clearly postmenopausal, as well, because we don't like the estradiol level to go up to 100, and patients were treating only with an AI and not with something that blocks the receptor. And I guess the issue is that if a woman really is endocrinologically premenopausal, I don't know it's so much that the AI is going to hurt her, but she's not going to get effective hormone therapy for breast cancer. We don't have any data on this, but you're trying to get rid of the estrogen because that drives the tumor growth. And we've shown that dropping estrogen levels in tissue improves outcome, that stimulating estrogen production by the ovaries might not be a good thing. <laughs> so. I guess the other thing is that even though we've been somewhat discouraged about the idea of combining hormonal therapy, there are studies right now in the metastatic setting in postmenopausal women looking at the combination of fulvestrin and an aromatase inhibitor, which is kind of an interesting idea. I think it's very interesting. And that data comes from very carefully done preclinical models that have looked at mice with various kinds of breast tumors that are sensitive to hormones. And I think that it'll be interesting to see the outcome of those trials. Again, they're using this loading approach of the fulvestrin where you really do get the levels up a lot sooner and is my standard approach now of 250 milligrams every two weeks times three doses. Some studies are starting with 500 milligrams. We don't have any data on that quite yet, but just to try and get the levels up even higher. But I think that the combination regimens avoid the metabolic interaction of tamoxifen with the aromatase inhibitors, which is, we think, (laughs) that that's why that wasn't a more effective combination in ATAC. The last thing I want to ask you about is adjuvant therapy for women with HER2-positive tumors. We've seen tremendously exciting results coming out of the trastuzumab studies. Right now in a non-protocol situation, how do you make the decision about whether or not to use trastuzumab? This is a big question. We've had a lot of controversial panels about this, but pretty much everybody with a one centimeter or greater tumor, I use trastuzumab. And there's one patient that I haven't used trastuzumab in since that data came out from our cooperative group trials and the HERA trial in Europe. And that's a patient who has congestive heart failure. (laughs) She can't tolerate the chemo all that well, actually, but unfortunate situation. But otherwise, we really give trastuzumab to everybody. And Presumably, I have in my clinic women who had HER2-positive disease who received chemotherapy and are long-term survivors, no Herceptin. But I think that because the impact is so enormous, following the heart carefully along with it, that there isn't a downside to giving trastuzumab to these women given the tremendous impact. I think where the controversy really enters now, and it's very controversial, is two groups of women, and they're kind of similar. One is ERPR negative less than one centimeter tumors. So these are small tumors, HER2 positive, but you can't give them hormone therapy. The other is that group of patients who could have gone on the BCIRG and HERA trials, but not on the U.S. cooperative group trials, the NSABP and the breast intergroup trial, those are women who had greater than one centimeter, less than two centimeter ER positive disease. So kind of an intermediate risk group. And my feeling is that for those patients who have a lower risk, but HER2 positive disease, one, we don't have the answer right now. And you have to use your best judgment. But 
What we felt is that these women could have a higher risk of recurrence and that if we can administer a therapy that will markedly reduce their risks, then it may still be beneficial. So for example, it's a game of math. If you have a lower risk, but the impact of treatment is large, you're still getting a pretty good benefit. And a lot of those women we see are quite young, where the impact of relapse in two to three years, which is when women are mostly relapsing from HER2 positive disease is huge. It's not the 85-year-old women we're talking about. So we were talking about this recently, and generally what we've done is to use four cycles of AC followed by a year of trastuzumab, very similar to the HERA trial. Some of my colleagues have used the regimen TC, or docetaxel and cyclophosphamide, that Steve Jones presented compared to AC, and it showed some improved impact, and 50% of those patients had no negative disease, so... You mentioned your patient with heart failure. I don't think anybody would be brave enough to give trastuzumab to a patient like that. But what One about would hope not. <laughs> what about other patients who have histories of cardiac events or decreased ejection fractions, but maybe have you know a bunch of positive nodes and HER2 positive disease? Is a cardiac history absolute contraindication to use trastuzumab? It depends on the cardiac history. Just like most things, there's never a straight answer to anything much, except for you should use hormone therapy for ER-positive disease. I mean, you know, you can't think of a lot. But in that situation, I think, you know, a history of a myocardial infarction is not a reason not to give trastuzumab or hypertension or a stent, for example. The markedly reduced ejection fraction in the absence of clinical signs of heart failure is a big risk. So if you have myocardial damage, that really puts you at much higher risk for additional cardiac damage from trastuzumab. And it'll be interesting to see when lapatinib, Ticurb, is FDA approved, whether or not insurers will allow us to substitute that drug as potentially less cardiotoxic. I mean, we don't know that for sure. There's just been a large analysis. Edith Perez did of patients enrolled on trials with all different cancers. And that's a retrospective evaluation. It's not perfect, but it could be. Lapatinib hasn't been given with doxorubicin, for example. Could be that it's less cardiotoxic and could be an option for those women. But I think it's really important in those settings to think that these patients have disease which is very sensitive to chemotherapy, and women are cured with HER2-positive disease without trastuzumab. So you don't want to put people into permanent heart failure. And we've actually, you know, we've given a lot of trastuzumab. We participated actively in the trial. We've used adjuvant trastuzumab in patients ineligible before the data came out, and then right away as soon as it came out from the NCI's alert. And we've had one patient who developed really severe congestive heart failure. And this was an African-American woman in her 40s, no cardiac history, but was a long-term smoker. So I do wonder if the cigarette smoking really is what predisposed her to risk. And she got AC, did okay, got her Taxol, Paclitaxel, and Trastuzumab. And right before surgery, her ejection fraction was 42%. So we repeated it. It was less than 20%. She was in fulminant congestive heart failure, delayed her surgery. It's about eight months later now, and her ejection fraction is coming up, but it is not normal. So I think a woman with failure is probably not the right situation to use that. What about the use of trastuzumab without chemotherapy? All these trials utilize it with chemotherapy. Older patient who normally you would maybe frail comorbidities that you wouldn't want to use chemotherapy. What about trastuzumab alone? 
I think there are several parts to that. One is trastuzumab alone, we know in the metastatic setting can be very effective, especially in women whose cancers are strongly HER2 positive by fish testing. If you don't have the option to give other treatment, I think it's a very reasonable option to take for a patient rather than to not treat them. And the other part of that is that if a woman is elderly and has ER positive, HER2 positive disease, and you really want to give something other than just a hormone therapy, you could consider that combination. Although again, that's the subject of a trial. You can't enroll all those patients in randomized trials. So, What about the issue of the cardiac toxicity as it relates to using trastuzumab in the metastatic setting? In the metastatic setting, we use different rules in general for all of our decisions. We try and reduce toxicity, but because trastuzumab improves survival and responses, we really try to use it even in the setting of cardiac toxicity. So what we'll do is monitor heart function carefully. If there's a drop in ejection fraction, we hold off, we send our patients to the cardiologist, they go on medications, and when their ejection fraction comes back up again, we restart the trastuzumab. And we've done that successfully in countless women, as have my colleagues. So I know that in those patients who get the late cardiac toxicity, that many of them can really tolerate restarting trastuzumab and continuing for years without difficulty. The adjuvant setting, of course, is very different because we're hoping to cure those women.